country for September 16th, 2021. So, it's becoming more apparent that our podcast's self-imposed sabbatical must come to an end. Although we've been enjoying a much-needed respite and doing research for our upcoming comic book episode, we've come across a movie that needs to be discussed. Reactions to this movie are spreading across social media like wildfire, so it's proving paramount that we review it as soon as possible. Eric, it's Jake. You heard we're reviewing a James Wan movie before we do our comics episode. He's going full horror grump! Oh my god. Get the tranquilizer gun. We can't let him escape the studio. We need all of us on this review to have a truly well-rounded perspective. Jake, Jake, we need you to calm down. Don't tell me to calm down. You both tricked me. You said the comic book episode was next. We weren't trying to trick you. That was the plan, we swear. But sometimes plans change. I'm not watching The Fucking Conjuring again, you hear me? But he's asking you to watch The Conjuring right now, okay? That franchise retrospective isn't on the schedule for this year. You promised me Blade, goddammit! We're going to do Blade as we promised. You lie! We're not lying to you. We are going to review Blade. We even have a special guest joining us for Blade who is a fabulous writer. So, so we're reviewing Blade. After we do this little James Wan bonus episode, in our next episode, we're each picking one comic book adaptation to review. You picked Blade, and we're very glad you did. And Nick and I are both very excited to review it with you. And Nick, you picked Swamp Thing, right? Yeah, Jake, I picked Swamp Thing. We have another amazing comic writer who's going to review it with us. Oh, I like Swamp Thing. Oh, I know you do, buddy. And Eric, you picked the New Mutants, right? Eric, you picked the New Mutants, right? Well, you motherfucker. Okay, okay, that might have been a tiny lie. You're gonna make me watch goddamn Faust, Love of the Damned, aren't you? Jake, let me explain. Why can't you let me have nice things? Jake, everything I do is for the good of the podcast. Grump smash! Nick, take the shot! Strap him into the chair. Well, for that matter, all of us need to strap the fuck in, because it's time to talk about Malignant. Hell yeah, it is. We're back, baby! Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to a brand new special bonus episode of the Scary Stuff Podcast. With me today are these traitorous motherfuckers, Nick. (laughs) Hey, everybody, how you doing? (laughs) And Eric. Sorry we had to put you down like that, Jake. The greater good. (laughs) (laughs) So we've been working on our comics episode for a while now. We we took a little bit of a break, as you hopefully noticed, and we decided we were going to come back with our comic spectacular because... We're all pretty big comic nerds. Well, Nick's not a huge comic nerd, but he likes them. Yeah. And fucking James Wan (laughs) got in the way (laughs) by releasing, well, I guess he didn't technically release it, but whatever, it's his fault. Um, (laughs) Malignant. 
And Malignant, it hit the horror community like a bit of an atomic bomb. Oh, hell yeah. And really has divided up and down the horror sphere opinions on this. So we thought we ought to take a crack at it as a nice way of kind of getting back in the swing of things and uh, reminding everybody that uh, we're opinionated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, after I saw this movie... (laughs) As I showed you guys, I was working on the bonus episode artwork during the movie because just mere minutes into it, I said, if this goes the way I think it's going to go, this is potentially going to be the most scary stuff episode that ever scary stuff. (laughs) So we should probably talk about this. Normally, we do a lot of kind of build up for these and 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 we, you know, it's harder for us to kind of get together and watch films. So we didn't get the chance to watch this together. But knowing that it was going to get blown for us, we all put on the the afterburners to get it watched. And once we all watch it, it's like, well, shit, let's talk about it. <laughs> uh, and you should know right now, we're going to spoil the shit out of everything yep. in this Massive film. spoilers yes. here. And if I can clearly say that I enjoyed this movie a thousand times over going in cold. So if you have any, any inkling, this is when you're going to watch. You should stop listening immediately and don't listen again until you've watched the movie. Because holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, that, that's the one thing I wanted to get out of the way before spoilers was say, yep, we're going to spoil the heck out of it. I did before people turn the podcast off. I just wanted to really also quickly say there is some slight trigger warnings here. There is going to be some talk uh, and in the movie uh, incidents of domestic abuse and uh, a miscarriage. I think it's important to warn people up front. Don't want anybody to be blindsided. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. One thing I'll point out as well, after you get done watching it, a lot of folks we follow on social media, it, it, the, the reactions have been quite divisive. But one person who was a really big fan of it was Trevor Henderson, who's a fabulous artist. We chatted with him back on our review Trevor. of Butterfly Kisses back in the found footage episode. And he did a really cool just art piece homage to malignant because i think he's watched it like five times already based on his twitter feed (laughs) Uh, so we'll retweet it after this episode comes out but definitely seek that out but yeah before we get into spoilers i think it's safe to say even though we haven't really talked about it this much i haven't told nick or jake what i really think of it i just told them you have to see it and to that end i think all of us for one reason or another are going to say yes see this it is is least worth seeking out Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Even if it's just for the zeitgeist thing, because it, we're, it is absolutely the talk du jour of our cinema lately. And if you don't see it soon, it's going to get spoiled. Yeah. And since I'm sure the sequel is already in pre-production, you're going to want to get on it. It's on HBO Max. Yes. Uh, if you don't feel mm-hmm. like going to the none of us went to theaters to see it because very know. few people did based on the opening box office. So. Things I mean, but everything right is now. taking a beating yeah. right now. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 I, yeah, I would have loved to have seen this in the theater. Oh, well, yeah. that's actually not entirely true. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're going to we're going to talk about that as soon as we get into spoilers. So spoiler warning in effect. We're off. So just to, just to clear the deck and get our, our bona fides down here, because I, I insulted James Wan at least once so far, probably twice. I've seen all of the Conjuring verse films. All of them. And I think I'm the only one who's seen more than two here, right? I think you both seen I, I have Conjuring. Seen none of them. I've seen more than two. Yeah, I've seen it, Conjuring one and two, and I've seen the first Annabelle. They're not my cup of tea. 
and everything else I will watch. It's they're not it, my cup of tea either, but I've seen <laughs> all of them, Nick. <laughs> no, I'm going to talk about my reaction to those movies here in a second, but I will say that I haven't watched the rest of them because they, like a lot of horror, they fall into the category of, well, we're going to do this on the pod. I'll just leave it till we, we get to it on the pod. And also, technically, you have seen them because you saw one, and they're all the fucking same. But... <laughs> Except yeah, Annabelle seen, 3. I've not Except seen Annabelle any of 3. The Conjuring. I've not seen uh, Insidious. I have seen a fair number, almost all, of the Saws, and I really enjoyed Dead Silence. All of these of which are all James Wan's babies, one way or the other. And, oh my god. I, I, I really enjoyed this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen all the Insidious movies, but I have seen the first couple. Just the first one, yeah. And I saw Dead Silence, I I saw which is three. the one that gets compared to this the most. And I remember seeing Dead Silence, and I don't remember any reaction to it at all. It was Isn't a while Dead ago. Dead Silence the puppet one? Yeah. yeah. Dead Silence is the puppet one. So, yeah, and that. which, again, is one of those, I'd like to revisit it. I didn't have time to revisit it for this. Again, we're going to get to it on the pod yeah. at some point, yeah. so I'll see it then. I, I, I did, most I heavily associate him with the conjuring movies because they're the big horror franchise right now by leaps and bounds so it was kind of thinking about those and the way those are put together that i was thinking about most when i watch this and the way this is put together and i you know i know people love these movies uh the conjuring films so they have when, a following for certain when when we cover them we'll we'll get heavier into why i don't care for them and yet have watched all of them that's just self-loathing though yeah, there is a discussion I really want to have on the Conjuring films, which is we probably won't have here because it's probably going to take a bit. But yeah. what I will say is the Conjuring films are are generally not my cup of tea. However, there are elements of those films that I think James Wan gets a bad rap for and shouldn't from certain corners of, of hard. I'm going to say a lot of folks love the shit out of those movies, but that's there there is an in-depth conversation about James Wan's approach to filmmaking that I want to get into for the Conjuring movies less so here because it doesn't quite apply as much to this movie it this, doesn't this it doesn't. is a different formula than than all of the Conjuring films in the way they operate but not that different it's still got for my mind the same inherent problems that a lot of those have in which a lot of it comes down to all of these movies should be 45 minutes shorter. <laughs> See, normally I agree on that point with the, the conjuring films less. So for this movie. Yes. And we'll probably get into why here in a little bit. Let me just toss one other thing out there. And this is yep. incredibly stupid. The word malignant in my head is spelled with an E. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know why. I have no idea why, but every time I see it, and it's Where, got at the an beginning a in or there, at the end, because there's two, the second, there's two the possible second A should okay. be an E, okay. malignant, and it's malignant or whatever, and it bugs me, and it keeps bugging me every time I see the the word so much lately, and it I it's just one of those stupid, completely irrational things that gets under my skin. So like I even started with a bad attitude about this film. I love that you have a bad attitude about this film because it's spelled correctly. <laughs> yeah. exactly and there's other films that i have a bad attitude about because they're spelled incorrectly because i'm insane and you must have figured this out by now so nick very positive jake not so much okay so i didn't enjoy this film but Aww. i didn't hate it either i think 
it does some stuff that that I liked and it has some fun stuff and I think it does a very good job of creating a new kind of horror not icon but like horror monster villain yeah villain that will be very memorable will be interesting while also being completely ridiculous <laughs> and I'm not going to really enjoy any of the movies they're in but it's it's kind of t- like and look and I'll, I'll say up front, I'm going to call it, uh, I'll maybe remember to say Gabriel once or twice, but it's going to be backwards Bagul for me. <laughs> the whole yeah, we should probably, you know, we're spoiler Vic. Let's just go up front here. This movie is what happens if Basket Case and the Dark Half decided to like have an affair. <laughs> this, I, I am about 90% convinced that the genesis for this was Warner Brothers sent James Wan a Teams meeting invite because they wanted to discuss working on The Conjuring 3, not knowing that Frank Henenlotter had hacked James <laughs> Wan's email and hopped on the Teams meeting, you know, <laughs> with, with no kind of, Hi there, yeah, Mr. Warner Brother. Hi, James Wan here. Uh, James, your, your camera's off. Oh, oh, is it? Oh, I got the light on. Uh, I'm not sure what's wrong here. <laughs> It, James, you sound a little different. Hey, fuck you. You know I grew up in Australia. But anyway, anyway, anyway. <laughs> Listen, what I want to talk about here is I made a lot of fucking money for you guys, all right? I made a lot of fucking Not a little bit of fucking money. A lot of fucking money for you guys. You know, I made that I made that, 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 that Fast 7 movie. You know, I made the, 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 the Aquaman movie with uh, Nicole Basinger and uh, the, the, <laughs> with Jason Mumu. And uh, I made the, that Saw movie, you know, with the Killer Puppet. And I made the Dead Silence movie with the Killer Puppet. I made that uh, Annabelle doll with the Killer Puppet. Just don't think I got a hard on for Killer Puppets here. But uh, anyway, a lot of fucking money. Listen, I want one of them Chris Nolan deals, all right? So I'm going to send you my bank account details. You're going to wire me $40 million. And whatever I do with that $40 million, you're going to release it. Okay. James, we already have your bank account on file. We don't. Oh, no, no, no. I'm changing banks. I'll, I'll send you the information. Oh, sh- 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 oh sorry. The connection's breaking up. I got to go. Love you. Go fuck yourself. Bye. <laughs> but, but to that end, and so to go briefly into my reaction to this film. Yeah, I'm excited. We don't know if you liked it or not yet. I'm pretty sure you landed squarely in the middle, but... There are two movies this year that made me truly miss going to the theaters. The first one is Judas and the Black Messiah. Mm. Because just a phenomenal film, but it's just... It's so perfectly put together. The way it's shot, it just has such a great cinematic look to it. The performances are so wonderful. And it's one of those films I was just halfway through watching. It's like, I, I wish... I was sitting in that theater seat with these performances writ large and you could just feel the movie wash over you. That was the movie where I felt it kind of the strong. And that was back in February when that ran on HBO Max. The second movie is this one. But I don't wish I had seen this at any time in theaters. I wish I saw this at 11 o'clock on a Friday night, which is the same time I saw Freddy versus Jason. Because then I would have been perfectly comfortable in the last 15 minutes getting up, standing on the armrests, and shouting, Yes! (laughs) And this, to that end, this movie, there's a potential for an argument here. I'm not bringing this up because I want to get into an argument. I'm just going to make my point. We're going to do that anyway, though. We we got other stuff we're going to argue about. This thing I'm about to bring up is a topic du jour at the moment. So 
I'm just going to bring this up as a point of reference for me, and then we'll move on. The movie this reminded me of most, well, not most, but one of the things that keenly comes to mind is Blade Runner 2049 by Denis Villeneuve. And oh, wow. The reason is it is so rare where you see a big budget movie that feels like it escaped instead of was released. <laughs> where you get a movie where you still feel that someone had a voice or that someone got away with something. Yes. Like someone was asleep at the wheel and were able to get 90% or 95% of the movie they actually wanted to make with an extravagant amount of money. And then when the studio heads showed up to get final cut, they barricaded the editing room, put the film cans in a basket and sent them down the river. Like, you know, a little bit like, go on, Moses. I hope you find a good home. And then someday someone will find the film cans and this film will be released. It, but, it has the fewest number of studio scars on it for certain. <laughs> and I realize that is a weird analogy, but that was one of the things that I love the shit out of Blade Runner 2049. And that was one of the things that it really felt like, holy shit, how did Denis Villeneuve get away with it? Because it checks all the boxes for what a studio would want, but it had a voice. It had actual emotion to it. It felt like I'm sure there were compromises made but it felt like there were very few and it's so rare on something that you see on that scale that actually feels like it has a voice. And this movie mainly with the opening, I mean, I have a lot to say about the opening of this film. We'll talk about that in a second, but there's so many points in this movie where it feels like James Wan is leaning around the camera and looking into the lens going, I'm getting away with it. (laughs) And like there is, I made the Frank Kennelotter joke earlier. There is 0% chance that when James Wan submitted this and the studio had signed off on it, the next words out of James Wan's mouth weren't, you fool, and ran out of the room. <laughs> now, I think the studio had a good idea about what they were getting, and James Wan has made them a shit ton of money. And it was clearly like, yeah, we can toss him $40 million to make whatever the hell he wants. Why not? We're going to recoup it on... Conjuring 57 or Aquaman 2, so why not? But a lot of folks don't get to do that and don't get to do that on this scale. And particularly in the opening, but particularly, like I mentioned, the last 15 minutes of this movie. Yeah, baby. When we talked about spoilers earlier, and again, we're going to assume you've, you've seen it. It's not so much spoiling the crux of the premise so much as how far it goes with it. It's like, I had it pegged from basically the opening credits, everything that was you know, essentially going to play out. I could not have predicted. No, nope. we got to that prison cell sequence. Holy how shit. How far we were going to go. <laughs> and when yeah. someone pulls off something like that, it's, it is cause to celebrate. Absolutely. Yeah. And you talk about being predictable. Yeah. If you've ever seen Basket Case, you had this pegged very sort of. quickly. Sort of. And the, the, the thing, I have to give them credit. They went out of their way on misdirection on this, but not in a cheap or cheater fashion. Like, so right off the bat, the trailers kind of give the impression that it's this imaginary best friend kind of thing. Well, you know, I never like, watched actually, the trailers. I didn't yeah, either. The, the trailer really kind of gives this because the trailer focuses on her as a kid, like talking to herself. Really? Yeah. And then she's being attacked and like the door is slamming and there's you can't see who's on the other side. And so you get this idea that it's this 
invisible entity, maybe a ghost, maybe some sort of psychic projection. The trailer leads you astray in the most glorious way. Then you start oh, watching it. And in the, <laughs> in the very first 15 minutes, the movie's like, do you watch the trailer? Ha, <laughs> fuck you! <laughs> this is what we're doing. You're like, okay. And then you're like, okay. So clearly we're going hand and ladder on that. That's cool. But what's up with the time jump? You know, that's the biggest question at this point. Like, how do you get from we're going to detach this problem to 30 fucking years later? And then they introduce the Seattle Underground, which is fantastic. It's this, mm-hmm. it, it really leads you to believe that you're dealing with this entity that has grown up on its own in the underground bowels of the city and somehow learned to survive. And it's down there doing its thing. And that was really well done. And then you hit that fucking cell scene and you're like, oh shit, this is what we're doing. <laughs> and my mind just fucking exploded and i'm like i will give this movie all the money (laughs) because it makes me so happy i want to talk about the broad strokes of the opening in relation to what you just said if that's okay just the the broad strokes opening yeah i just want to toss one thing out here real quick because it pertains to two things that were said and it's a complete non-fucking sequitur (laughs) you talked about the movie that most made you wish we could go to theaters this year and you talked about trailers that misdirect you the movie that most makes me want wish that we could go to theaters this year was Dimland, which is oh, an yeah. absolutely lovely little fable, very magical, highly recommended. But I can only imagine what the trailer for that would look like versus the movie if they were releasing that in wide. And it just it makes it's floor popcorn extraordinaire. But anyway, <laughs> I just wanted to throw that out there because we haven't you, busted out floor popcorn in a while. All right, Dimland just made me. I really wish I could have seen it in theaters and with people. And it would have been fun. It's just such a cute, lovely, well, cute well, that, song. But quick non sequitur on that, since you mentioned floor popcorn, which is where we mentioned in previous episodes, it's the experience of when we're the only people in the theater enjoying the movie, <laughs> and you turn around and you see that the rest of the audience has gotten so frustrated by what they just saw. Nine times out of ten, an A twenty four movie, and yep. they've chucked their popcorn on the floor. Hence the term floor <laughs> popcorn. This movie, Jake sent a screen grab in our group chat, and I guess it was the Amazon review for this yes. like the amazon summary oh it was so it was, that was it was or was the, it imdb um, oh i think it was uh rotten tomatoes rotten tomatoes okay, okay. and I, it was, I imagine it could be any of them though <laughs> on a scale of five it was 2.8 it was in that perfect and i'm not, I'm not kidding that is the prime rating i look for on a horror movie is 2.5 <laughs> is golden when you see 2.5 it doesn't mean Basically, everyone who saw this went, meh. Nope. It means half the people who saw this went, Gah! and threw their popcorn on the floor, and the other half went, fuck yes! <laughs> so You are guaranteed a, a reaction. <laughs> it's the A24 review range. Look up A24 movies. They're almost all between two and three. <laughs> and sometimes the really good ones are like one, like high one point something. <laughs> Imagine a lot of horror movies end up in that, because there's such... There's two such distinct horror fan camps. Yep. It seems like, you know, the, the you Conjuring camp and the it, yeah. uh, Midsummer camp. <laughs> yeah, Midsummer. And to that end, in talking about the Conjuring camp, is I think your experience with the Conjuring films or James Wan's previous work, again, discounting Dead Silence a bit because I can't speak on that one because I don't remember it. But I think that informs how you're going to see this movie because if you see those Conjuring films, 
Well, I shouldn't say it informs how you see this film. I'd say that it, it informs how the movie approaches itself and conveys itself to you. Because the Conjuring movies, Jake mentioned earlier, they have a very cut and paste sort of tone whereas you know this is the general rhythm with which we establish scares this is the rhythm the the movie moves this is the color palette we use and all of those elements are present in this movie in the middle not the opening so the opening of this movie is a beautiful promise to the viewer (laughs) first off to break down the actual opening because i find this fascinating when we get the opening production studios and we'll probably do a production rundown with Nick here in just a second. But when we get the production studio logos, there's VHS distortion over yep. them, and, you know, with analog, you know, blip noises and then, you know, tracking lines running up and down. And then we're going to move into a scene of somebody recording a journal entry, which we riffed on in the opening on a VHS tape. So it, you would think, all right, we have the production company thing. We're doing a VHS effect there because we're going to transition into a VHS scene but it doesn't. There is a shot in the middle where it breaks its own narrative entirely or breaks its own visual sense because before it goes into the VHS confession, there is an establishing shot of Arkham by the Lake (laughs) with this massive building, which is glowing goddamn green inside with a misty moon behind it. But there's no VHS effects. It is clearly just an establishing shot to show you a visual tone of what this movie's going to be at some point. And I saw that shot of the building. I was like, no, <laughs> wait, really? <laughs> and then we get the VHS confession. And so to that end, since it breaks its own visual continuity for just an opening shot. And so what you can infer by that, yeah, there's still plot continuity between VHS theme production studio, VHS confession or journal entry sequence but it also the vhs bit with the production companies ergo is as much a statement of theme and tone as much as it is anything to do with the plot point it's about to jump into it's this is very much at least to me feels like james wan saying i want to make the shit i used to watch on vhs growing up so i just want to jump in here very quickly and point out that this is a really good example of how the different way that we Amongst us watch films. Eric is, of course, very smart. (laughs) My note for the entire establishing shot is the asylum building is cool as shit. It is. (laughs) And my second my second note is I hate that the way past in this film is the year I graduated high school. And visual continuity or anything, it flashed 1993, and I almost missed the next five minutes for having my damn head in my hands. <laughs> oh, god damn it. <laughs> Boy, that building's cool. I couldn't find out if it was real or not. I assume it's not, because it looks like CG. But hey, yeah, I, I, I want to yeah. go there if it's real. I'd be curious to see what buildings inspired it, though. Because again, I, this when was you all see filmed this building... in LA and Seattle, so it feels mm-hmm. like this would have been in every horror movie if it was real. Yes. It, the, the way the building looks, it looks like someone did it as a production concept for Batman Forever, put yes. it in front of Joel Schumacher, and he looks at it and goes, maybe too much? <laughs> <laughs> That's how it, it's glowing green inside. It's, it it it's, is the, the classic Dr. Frankenstein like castle up on the cliff situation. Yes. <laughs> It really gives you that incredible mad scientist vibe to yep. this. It gives you the mad scientist vibe. Then we cut to the lead scientist and doing a very pretty seriously presented 
journal entry about, so it's, you know, it's come to our attention, blah, blah, blah. And Gabriel's getting stronger, given the sense of severity, then the lights flicker. This is all the stuff we riffed on in our opening. And then the door opens. And then again, keeping in mind the visual rhythm and look of the conjuring films with their kind of slow push-ins, very static shots, their kind of washed out color palettes. We get crazy handheld push-ins. We get bright ass reds. We get a Jurassic Park scene of someone having a delayed scream of looking at their (laughs) arm as it's been eaten. This big action sequence with someone, you know, (laughs) shooting a gun to to put this unseen monster down. Big dramatic push-in. It's time we cut out the cancer. And it's, it's so, over so the yeah. incongruous with what you think, you know, based on what horror movies James Wan has made recently. And it's this is the promise. This is the movie holding out its hand to you. Because after this, after this in the opening credits, which are very 90s, yep. we immediately go into the conjuring pace. After yes. that, it breaks it from time to time and there are over the top moments. But after that, the color palette the way the shots are constructed and the way that everything moves, it feels very, very conjuring. But before that, this is the promise. This opening sequence is the movie holding out its hand and saying, no matter what happens from here, I assure you in the end, we're coming back here. Yep. We're going to go all the way nuts before this is done. This is and what matter this of fact, really about. It goes further than that. This movie <laughs> under promises and over delivers. Yes. On its just bonkersness. And I, I appreciate that so much. For as effusive as I am, I wouldn't say I like adore the movie. I, I quite like it. I have quibbles here and there with some of the pacing and some of the structuring. But yeah, I just appreciate that someone got away with this. <laughs> Eric had recommended we watch this and with that, we watched this very quickly because it was going to get blown for us. Yep. So I put it on and watched that opening scene. And when she said, we have to cut out the cancer, I was like, Oh, I get it. I know why yeah. he wanted us to watch this. This is, <laughs> this is going to be fun because I can't, otherwise I can't imagine anybody recommending a James Wan film to me. So I knew he had reasons. Yes. Even if you had hated it, like I, th- I think it is fair to say, again, it's like, look, it's already all over social media and it's advisable to just just go ahead and watch it. We've seen folks who we follow and respect on social media who've hated the hell out of this movie. Responses have been divisive. Like we said, it's in that 2.5 spot. But I think it, this movie absolutely warrants giving a shot. And I look, I like I love the opening. I was relatively fine with the ending i <laughs> i like the opening long pause give me a minute <laughs> and i appreciate that it does go all the way that it just fucking jumps off the diving board directly into the deep end without its swimmies on and said let's let's go for a swim motherfuckers the problem i have with the entire film is the an hour and a half in the middle uh-huh. which is largely dull and I always get kind of lost in some of the, the annoying details and they, they crop up in every conjuring type film, just little shit that bothers me, but it, it builds and builds and builds. So I, like I said, I like the creature in the, I mean, I had it pretty much, I, well, I figured out, I guess in the fight with the cop and seeing the way it was moving, what was mostly going on. Obviously I couldn't predict 
It was the, yeah. what happened in specifically. In <laughs> it the was jail the scene, eighty but... minute mark when I really had figured it all out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I like you know that it goes all the way. Look, I even like I like the music in this. I like the way the music works in a lot of ways because it's just goofy. I was going to ask you about the soundtrack stuff too. Loved it, particularly it, the the use of the Safari Riot cover of "Where Is My Mind." It was fine. <laughs> I, I was more interested in the in the, the score especially like right now where it cuts into the the music goes into the opening scene which is the x-files credits yeah and but then it's right after that it's just it's it's such a weird because it starts good goes way down comes back good for you know just by the end of it it's just like i'm just glad shit's going on and it's it's got all of these tropes that i don't like and it, it, it hits you with them right after the credits when she pulls into this giant ass fucking house in a 1983 Toyota Corolla. It's like, <laughs> you know, I, I live in this giant impeccably furnished house with no less than four Tiffany lamps. <laughs> but I drive a piece of shit car from 40 fucking years ago because I'm poor, but also rich, but also poor. And I, I hate it. I hate that every goddamn horror movie, especially every Conjuring movie, is always trying to say that these are... Like working class people who work tough jobs and night jobs who live in these fucking California ass mansions. I guess this one's Seattle. This is a big, impeccably furnished house. Yes, and it's and yep. it's just it and, and that her pulling that goddamn Corolla into that <laughs> made me feel lied to by the opening. <laughs> I looked it up. It was a 1983 Toyota Corolla wagon. So was, I, that's how irritated by the car I was, and especially she walks in in you know her night shift outfit. And, you know, all bedraggled and haggard and, you know, I'm working class and walked by three Tiffany lamps. It's like, come on, man, fucking just rent a smaller house. It would be cheaper. You can pretend. I, I don't know. It, it, that shit just irritates me. And it's so common in horror movies and especially this particular range. It, it was like it happened in the very beginning of um, Curse of La Lorna. Or La Lorna, La whichever Lorna. one, whatever the bad one was. Whoa, <laughs> you're casting a pretty wide net there. <laughs> well, there were two Lorna films that came out. One of them was... Oh, whoa, whoa, you're talking fabulous. about The Conjuring. Oh, oh, you're talking about La Lorona yeah. bad films. Okay, I La, thought you were La talking La about... And that one is a giant-ass house, but they spend the entire time talking about how you know poor and bedraggled they are. And I'm like, you, you, you got to just get a smaller place to film this shit, man. Put cameras in the walls if you got to. I don't care if you need more room. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's one of those things It's it, that it, it, it immediately gets on my nerves. Because it's such a trope with these particular films and most modern heart. And it just, it wears me out. Yeah, I have some bits I'll I'll mention in response to what you just said. Before I get in there, uh, Nick, you want to run down the production details real quick? Let's do this. So, this is Malignant from this year, 2021. And we discussed it was written and directed by James Wan, who did Saw, Dead Silence, The Conjuring, Insidious. There were two other people involved in the story uh, right up, which would be uh, Ingrid Bissieu who this is the only movie she worked on for writing, but she is also the CSI uh, officer. Yes, Winnie <laughs> in the uh, in the movie. The screenplay and story were also written by uh, Akila Cooper, who worked on Hellfest. So. And a shitload of TV. Oh, yeah, shitload of TV. Is Hellfest the funny one or the slasher one? Slasher. Slasher one. So this was edited by Kirk M. Mori, who worked on The Conjuring, Pulse, and Feast. Cinematography by Michael Burgess. Who worked on The Curse of La Llorona, Annabelle Comes Home, and The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. One of those is good. <laughs> <laughs> Music by uh, Joseph Bashara, who worked on Insidious, 
The Conjuring, and The Curse of La Llorona. Creature effects designer was Mike Elizalde, who worked on Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, Hellboy 2, and Stranger Things. Nice! And it was also produced by Atomic Monster, who worked on The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, The Conjuring 2, and The Nun. Produced by New Line Cinema, who have worked on films like Seven, It, and The Evil Dead. Produced by Starlight Culture Entertainment, who worked on Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, Greta, and Crazy Rich Asians. It's produced by Boom Studios, worked on The Empty Man and Just Beyond. And distributed by Warner Brothers Pictures, who distributed It, I Am Legend, and Inception. And just throwing out this out there, it's not really a production credit, but one of the stunt people was Tara Mackin, who also worked on Community. So there's your very small community connection. <laughs> oh, nice! And not the only stunt actor, as uh, towards the end in the cell scene, we had Zoe, Zoe Bell, Bell, who is as a scorpion. <laughs> She's listed as scorpion, but I just have her down as problematic inmate number one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that they basically had a holy cell for stereotypes. That seems yes. weird. Just real quick, Zoe Bell has been in films such as The Hateful Eight, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Django Unchained, Death Proof, and Planet Terror. Seems like she works for a particular guy a lot. Oh, yes. (laughs) Does a lot of stunt work. Also was in, uh, what was it, Angel of Death, the web series that Ed Burbaker wrote. She was the lead in that. Mm -hmm. So to quickly circle back to what Jake was mentioning as far as the pace, I feel the same. I generally feel the Conjuring films are too long move at a ponderous rate and and they move at this ponderous rate be- to parallel the way the scares are constructed because most of the conjuring scares are jump scares weird noise silence slow pushing someone looking at something so, you know string string strings nothing booga 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 <laughs> jump scare and it's kind of you know wash rinse repeat from there and in this movie the middle chunk of this movie, a lot of the stuff with the lead character of Maddie, it's it all has that same visual palette. It it has that same rhythm, except when Gabriel's involved, and that's where it gets punctuated by these very frenetic, vibrant, and yeah. Jalo esque elements. And we mentioned before, Jalo is the subgenre of horror, which I've only seen a handful of stuff, so I'm not overly well versed. Uh, but I've seen enough that I think we mentioned before, there's the movie I watched as part of the prep for the void called the editor. If you're a Jalo fan, that movie is funny as hell. So do check it out. Bit of context on my experience with Jalo. When I saw the killer in this film, when Gabriel first appears in kind of full regalia, can't really get a good look at Gabriel's face because boy, howdy would that reveal later. <laughs> there's a good reason. Yeah. But when I saw Gabriel, I immediately went to Dress to Kill. And I said, nice. oh, it's Michael Caine yes. in Dress to Kill. Very With, similar you know, look. The black trench coat, and in that case, a razor blade. In this case, a makeshift Caduceus <laughs> award, which has been fashioned into a blade. I love this weapon. But Dress to Kill being obviously very Jalo influence, as a lot of De Palma's stuff is. But it is just punctuated every now and again. Every time Gabriel shows up, I mean, we get like the weird... Very CG effective when Maddie's dream world kind of dissolves and splits in half and yep. reassembles as far as where she actually is or where Gabriel has brought her at that particular point in time. But there are little touches as well, just like the neon lighting that makes it pop. Yes. Excellent color. How over the top it goes. Like when Gabriel is, again, we have a a, a weapon made of a Caduceus you know, medical award. 
And when Gabriel is, you know, bashing the doctor's head in, it looks like he struck oil because it's just <laughs> gouts of stuff coming up. And coming out of that sequence, you know, when when Maddie wakes up, they do this. There's fisheye lenses in a lot of establishing shots, again, for that very giallo feel. There's also when Maddie wakes up out of that particular sequence, they do this like wavy effect in the background to simulate, you know, reality shifting back end. And a lot of little touches where it's like, yeah, it's it's giallo, but with a lot more money. And <laughs> my favorite is the death of Dr. Gregory, I believe it is, who dies in the bathtub, because that's where there's the bathroom mirror dissolve. Played by Amir Ob- Abuela from Why Women Kill, Gods and Monsters, and Barbed Wire. Wow, what a filmography. I hadn't looked him up. <laughs> Just drop barbed wire there in the end. <laughs> oh, and barbed wire. Holy shit. <laughs> That's the one where there's the bathroom mirror dissolve. Yep. But aside from that, after it's, you know, reality kind of reassembles itself in that bit, the next shot is a Dutch angle, which fits, you know, again, the kind of surreal and absurd nature and over the top nature of all the Gabriel stuff. It's like, all right, yeah, yeah, of course, Dutch angle. But on top of having a Dutch angle, that's also the scene where Gabriel reveals himself by just sliding to the side yep. and coming in to frame, which I thought was the coolest damn shot. It is a, a bit sluggish, but I think it punctuates itself enough that I didn't feel bored in the middle chunk. And it's kind of a waiting made the heart grow fonder for those last 15 minutes going as nuts as it did. It kind of felt more earned by the rhythm that it had, you know, before then for me, at least. Yeah, it, it didn't for me, but again, that's, it's a lot of that is from the experience of watching these Conjuring movies and just saying, okay, well, here's the 15 minute chunk where this is going to happen. And here's the 15 minutes where this is going to happen. And here's the 15 minutes where this is going to happen. Can we just get to the back 15 see, minutes? <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. Having avoided the Conjuring films, I think I've enjoyed this movie more because while Almost certainly. I'm, while I'm encountering those types of like time cycles, segments, you know, that we'd normally set up, instead of getting the jump scare, where I'm just like, this is cheap and being disappointed, I get rewarded with Gabriel almost every time. And it's like, woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we really jump scares in this now that no not it was just gabriel showing up going let's fuck some shit up (laughs) i I guess in the opening sequence with the husband those are kind of jump scare setups. that uh, by far that was the most upsetting part of the film for me because there's a very important establishing shot early in the film that she is in a an abusive relationship and she gets badly injured by her husband which is crucial for the plot. I do appreciate that much. It wasn't just thrown in cheap. There is a reason she needs this injury in place. And to the credit, he also gets his comeuppance real fast. I like that. Yeah, um, they don't make you wait at all. Most movies, no. he would do yeah. like three heinous things before comeuppance. It's, nope. nope. Go, Second scene, he's down. done. Yeah, oh, that was... That, and, and, yeah. and the way that scene is treated, again, it's so jarring as a counterpoint to the opening mm-hmm. with as over the top as that opening is. And then you get to the first sequence with the house and very washed out color scheme, slow camera pans or whatever. And that sequence where she's attacked, mm-hmm. it is treated so seriously. Yes. For as schlocky as this film goes, that bit is treated. So it, there's yep. a wide shot. The sound effects of the mm. impact is awful. Yep. The score is not over. Th- it's just somber strings. It knows and what it's doing. And there's the shot of the blood on the door as she slides down. 
which is so you know upsetting. Yep. So it's that bit is treated so seriously. Again, it's it it's a fascinating counterbalance when you're sitting and watching this for the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and I'll give you that. It's well done for what it is. I just think really the way I came out of this is it was unnecessary to have domestic violence be the trigger here because it doesn't necessarily lend much towards her character or other than her sister being slightly uh, estranged, I guess. I I think you could have done, I mean, she's driving a 1983 Corolla, man. <laughs> rear-ended and whack her head into something, you know? I just, I, I get a little worn out on domestic violence being in a lot of this stuff. And it, it just didn't, it didn't feel like this movie had to have that. That's all. I, I see what you're saying, and I respect the opinion of it. And I don't think too much would have been lost by changing it up. I agree. I do feel it does add to the plot in that no, she's not just getting a physical injury, which unlocks the potential of Gabriel. She is being betrayed by someone who is supposed to be someone she can lean on, someone she can care for, which is isolating. And she's been isolated. Now she's further isolated. And so it allows that connection to Gabriel to go, look, you clearly have, no one I'm stepping in to take over this whole scenario here. Yeah. And that, and so I, I feel it adds to it, but I do agree. Uh, they could have gone some other way. Well, also gets into the whole crux of the, the gender choice for Gabriel. They didn't mm-hmm. go with a sister. No, they went with a brother. They went with, and it is a male. Gabriel is in essence, a male figure. who was literally controlling her. But who was tormenting her, and then you know when he's reawakened, you know is you could say gaslighting her by literally changing everything she is seeing. So I would guess that the parallel of her having an abusive male partner was deliberate in terms of a counterpoint for them Samira making Gabriel. a very yeah. specific choice to make Gabriel male and not. She's also the child of rape. Yes, everything you say makes sense. I just get a little worn out on it being a plot point. In a lot no, of that's absolutely like fair. And it just, yeah, that's fair. I think there's other ways to do that, and it'd be okay to explore some of those. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it, but in rewatching it too, I, I am going to imagine there's a lot of folks who, were, who would be very turned off by this film hmm. because of how seriously it presents elements, and then expects it then goes as daffy as it does at the end, and that's feels fair. like oh, you're again. It feels very much like the movies. You know, trying to play in two different tones. And I think some people would probably be bothered by that. I haven't seen that, but that would be my, I can easily see that happening. I think that's an absolutely a fair assessment. I will say this in terms of Gabriel's gender. I did learn that conjoined twins can't be male and female or assigned male and female at birth. They have to be the same, assigned the same gender. I thought that was interesting. I didn't realize the science of that. Huh. And, and I would guess that's probably played into, again, the choice they made, because the I, I didn't look up a bunch of interviews with James Wan. But one thing I did see in passing was him making reference to his partner, Ingrid Bisu, who's in the movie, that part of the genesis was for this was she's fascinated by medical anomalies and reading about, you know, crazy you know, medical shit. Can you believe this happened or whatever? So it was probably familiar with that particular scientific fact. And then deliberately subverting it for the, the plot choice in this film. Well, I think they say at one point that they're not conjoined. They they say what, what he is, which is... Uh, yeah, he's a partially he's absorbed. 
partially absorbed and yeah. she calls him a tetranoma yep. in the beginning. And there's, uh, I thought I wrote down what, what they actually say they are. I don't know that I did. Anyway, they're not conjoined, but that was the, the main term I knew with twins that were together. So I found out I was wrong on that. And I was all, I was all ready to be mad at the movie. Yeah, go ahead and say they're conjoined. And they never say it. Fuck you, say that, they Specifically say they're absorbed, yeah. <laughs> it's, he's a vestigial twin. Yep. Yeah, which so, are usually not alive. Which is a, a reveal they kind of save till towards the end. But you can see hints of it throughout the entire damn film. I mean, the very beginning, you can see Gabriel through a translucent sheet of plastic. And it's like, oh, that's Brody. And you're like, okay, he's we're definitely going basket case here. He's definitely, <laughs> definitely a conjoined of some sort situation going on here. And you run with that for a good portion of the film. And there are parts of the film that give away the ending right off the bat, but you are so sold on the removed twin aspect that you validate them in different ways. Like throughout the entire film, they're they're just janky like they're doing all this every time they move it's very awkward and odd and and the feet are pointing in weird ways and the arms are doing odd things you're like okay i'm going to validate this by saying that this person this entity grew up on the the side or the front or the back of someone else and had to adjust how it moves to deal with that and now that's a permanent affliction of them They, they look weird because they grew up attached to someone else Backwards Bagul. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just going to spill it. So when you learn that he was not removed, but assumed into her, that <laughs> they basically have removed <laughs> all the excess bits and pushed him the fuck into her skull and then the sealed do- it up. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> the doctor's solution to this. Oh, to my the whole God. Real dilemma is. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to our Lake Mungo episode, which is one of my favorite episodes we've ever done. And we were joined by Dave Lawson to talk about the film. Dave's awesome. It was some of the most fun we've had on the pod. And in the course of that discussion, Dave sings a little song that he sometimes (laughs) sings to himself. And that song is... When your trash is overflowing, <laughs> treat it like your feelings and push, push it, it down. down. And they totally do That's that. That's the solution to Gabriel in this. <laughs> is they have this, and we mentioned Basket Case earlier, which has this incredibly, oh. the shockingly graphic surgery sequence. Yes. Which this movie does too. Yes. Way more of just sawing Hell, bits it shows off. you half of it in the credits. It yep. does. And you don't even realize what you're looking at at first. You're like, okay, they just put together a bunch of like, you know, People cutting meat bits. Okay. And then you learn what it actually was. You're like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Watch number two on this is a lot like watch number two of the sixth sense. Holy shit. Because there's a lot of shit. Like there's the scene in the police station where she's on the phone with Gabriel. Yes. And she is. Real quick. Standing we established at- within the first 10 minutes of the film that Gabriel can communicate through speakers. Gabriel yeah. has a relationship with electricity. Yeah, where, electronic like, he, device. While, yeah. while he, he himself can't physically speak, he can communicate through electronic devices, cause lights to flicker, that kind of shit. And well, presumably has some semblance of control over it, which you wouldn't think, but there's the sequence where Maddie, this is before the right before the full Gabriel view, when Maddie is being grilled by the police officers, and they're in a cell, 
you know, with lights around the walls, but they've got the heat lamp over top of them, you know, like in the interrogation room. And Maddie freaks out and lets out this burst of energy where all the lights blow out, except the one that is closest in proximity to Maddie right in front of her (laughs) is not affected. (laughs) So it's like, no, but don't blow that one up. We need that one for the rest of the scene. I'm going to blow the rest of these motherfuckers out. It, it's definitely controlled. It is not just a random EMP blast or such. You know, no, it's it, it's targeted. Can pick out a pacemaker in the finale. <laughs> did you know I that pacemakers? That pacemakers do explode. They explode yeah. all the time in crematoriums. Yeah. Oh my! God. Oh my gosh! I had no idea. I was like, do pacemakers really explode? I looked it up and I found a whole fucking thing, man. <laughs> There's a whole thing about them in crematoriums. But anyway, so yeah, you finished. So, so she's in the in the the bathroom. And she's facing the camera, and behind her is a mirror. And every time she's talking, you can see the back of her head, and it's very consciously shot so that you can see the back of her head when Gabriel is talking mm-hmm. in the mirror. And th- there's a lot of stuff like that throughout this. Two other things. Well, one of the about two. I don't know a lot about Jalo films. That's that's one of my gaps. But a lot of reviews talk about how this is modern Jalo and bringing Jalo back and and all this stuff very glowingly. And at least three of those reviews also mentioned that there's nothing supernatural in this. So there was a part of me that said, well, they're probably wrong about Jalo too. Because <laughs> if you can come away from this movie and think there's nothing supernatural in it, I don't even know what to tell you. Motherfucker can control electricity from a distance. Yeah. He's a ninja somehow. He's super strong somehow. Yeah. And and you're like, yeah, there's, this is all just, you know, normal twin shit. And... It, yeah, when you're fused like that, apparently. Lady's got a, that's lady's the movie's got a argument. <laughs> She's got a fucking hinged skull that they didn't happen to notice when she had head damage and was in the hospital in the beginning of the film. The that that the is movie. one of the big things you got to get over, is that she has a massive head injury that never gets addressed or looked over. <laughs> it's finding the blood back there. They never, she got a head trauma to start the whole fucking thing. And, then, and, and she's in the hospital and like... You know what the first thing they did there was cat skin. You know what they probably found? Fucking monster in her head. <laughs> that shit would show up. Because as we were getting to it, yeah, it's he was subsumed into her skull. So when she hits her head early in the film, thanks to her husband, it basically cracks open the skull, allowing an <laughs> egress for Gabriel to come out every so often and take over and then just go rampage. And I love that. Gabriel has basically put on this jacket backwards on her to kind of claim identity of the body. Like this is me in the moment. Now this is my body, but doesn't change the fact that he's always running fucking backwards with the body. The feet are always on backwards. The elbows are always backwards. When he goes to strangle people, he's putting his arms up behind her back. So his thumbs are upside down. Like everything is reversed and it's so confusing and to, to watch and to listen to people's reactions. And then it all makes so much sense. Yeah. Like, also, oh my God. We just don't bend that way. Yeah. Elbows. <laughs> and there's scenes where the elbows, it's not just like unhinging your shoulders, which they do. They, they show him doing him, her. I'm going to say him when it's I'm Gabriel, speaking specifically right, yeah. about Gabriel. But again, you really have to turn your logic center off to really enjoy a lot of this. You have to, because yeah. again, he's a ninja. Why is he a ninja? Why can he dodge bullets? There's a shotgun blast point blank that doesn't even affect him. And at he at towards the end, he flips a three. I looked him up. Those hospital beds, 300 pounds. Yep. He flips him across the room into the sister and she's like, ow. And then 
later on, she's like, no, I, you know, what can you do? It's always been my body. And she lifts the fuck out of a 300 pound. Like, Why does she have super strength? <laughs> she, in that sequence, she, when she finally rests control of her body and exiles Gabriel to, you know, some far corner of her mind and puts him in a literal cell. I enjoyed that scene. She though. doesn't. I gotta admit, it's goofy, but it's fun. It's good. We, we cut the shot of the back of her head and she doesn't push your head she wills the back of her skull <laughs> shut and like you said she's like i've got all the super strength that gabriel had my last note on this movie is as sequels to unbreakable go i enjoyed this way more than glass <laughs> put bruce I'll willis in the sequel to this motherfucker i would like to give some credit real quick the gabriel scenes are often filmed by with a marina mazapa in place a uh, well-known contortionist she's worked in other things like the unholy and savage love and she just really sells it like th- there are definitely cgi scenes when they're like well we got to do a lot so we're just gonna you know computer this <laughs> they out. didn't say hey do some ninja shit backwards and she was like <laughs> bet <laughs> but whenever you it's clearly not the lead character when it's clearly not madison mitchell uh, who's played by annabelle wallace from the mummy annabelle and x-men first class when it's not her it's marina and marina is phenomenal like with the practical effects she brings in of this backwards life is glorious i really think it really added a lot to the film yeah i i really want to look up some of the behind the scenes material if there is some available of her work on the film and, and their approach to that and yeah like you said and then, and then the character does crazy ninja shit to that end if anyone is listening to this like i mentioned we're going to be reviewing blade in our upcoming comics episode if someone can do me a favor and take the prison or the police station scene and just scrape the score out <laughs> from those scenes and just replace it with the bloodbath music the <laughs> because it would fit it would work it would work how do you review this and come away with there's nothing supernatural in it motherfucker controls electricity what are you talking about yeah. But you know, by the end of the end of the film, you're learning that it's essentially, you know, it's like you think I'm a monster, then I shall become a monster. And it's all about Gabriel wanting revenge against the doctors who tore him apart and, <laughs> and the family that abandoned him. So Which is the exact plot of Basket Case. So yes. I appreciate that. <laughs> There's a lot of details in this that bugged me. And I do get bogged down in the details of films. Little shit. Well, just out of nowhere. Like, for example, little shit. When she reveals to her sister that she's adopted. She was adopted at age eight. Yep. And mm-hmm. later on, they're like, yeah, we, we don't throw anything away. We, of course, we've done oh my God. useless old that shit. Was my and it's her line. fucking adoption <laughs> papers. I had that in bold print. There's that bit where, where she's going through bins and pulls out and says, this is the reason why you don't throw anything away. Here we are. And it's certificate of adoption. What kind of Marie Kondo bullshit are you on? <laughs> Where you look at the adoption certificate for your first child and think, I'm not sure if this sparks enough joy in my life. I might need to throw this shit away. (laughs) But it's one of those, I think, deliberately ridiculous choices. There are sporadically just peppered, deliberately ridiculous shit. There's that line. There is the, the sequence where her birth mother falls through the ceiling which yep. is fucking hilarious 
<laughs> oh my god, the timing is perfect. Like, what the hell? The only thing it's missing is the sister Sydney getting incredibly defensive over the cops grilling Maddie and saying, I want you to show me one bit of evidence that my sister is involved in this. <laughs> <laughs> she goes through the goddamn table. It's like a it's like a scaffold match bump from a wrestling match. It's nuts. And there's other stuff like after Maddie installs the locks in the house after the first incident of the door blowing open and her not closing it and running upstairs. And I I like that shot. Like that's the the you know oh, we're gonna do this clever money shot when she gets up to the top. She's gonna say it's all in my head, which accurate. Uh, it is all in her head, <laughs> quite literally. But after she puts all those locks on, her sister comes in through a second story window. She got yep. Nobody fucking acknowledges that she did that. Just like, oh, hey, you're here, sis. What? <laughs> they, 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 they have a single leaf in her hair to show she climbed a tree. <laughs> I just it's it was just it's like, come on, man, just. Just don't do this to me every scene, man, it just just. Put some stuff in here that makes some goddamn sense once in a while. That one didn't bother me. It it, it didn't bother me per se, but it's one of those where the, it's like when her and her sister go to visit her mom, her mom never acknowledges that the baby sister is there. Nope. <laughs> she fawns all over Maddie. Never acknowledges the younger sister. Not until the sister's think, there solo later. Yep. <laughs> right. Which makes me think, well, maybe they didn't tell her it's adopted because they clearly don't give a shit about the actor daughter who disappoints them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I like her, the actor daughter randomly being in a fairy costume and they, they kind of like, is that a joke? Is that color? That's fine. But again, I assume that's one of those just like sporadic weird touches which, again, like if, yeah. if this was a Conjuring movie, it would be way the fuck out of place. In this movie, it's like just reminding you, we're going to fulfill our promise that we made at the opening. The movie it's also- like having having the only trophy that's made out of metal and not plastic in North America. Okay. <laughs> the one caduceus <laughs> where they're like, we're going to put a big like triangular spire up the center of it. Too. <laughs> this motherfucker is made out of steel, not plaster like all the other trophies you got <laughs> fucking karate class you piece of shit <laughs> i didn't mentioned earlier i didn't watch the trailer for this but i did see the promo posters and one of them was just the image of the black gloved hand holding the knife and i remember seeing that thing that is a really striking weapon design you know yep. with the wide blade and, and the wings coming out that's ah, really nifty then i saw the movie and saw where it came from and said <laughs> <laughs> Because that shit's hilarious. And another, speaking of just another James Wan touches, the sequences of Gabriel in the attic, like making the Caduceus sing, very saw. Like, yes, we suddenly go to industrial rock scoring for those sequences. We get rapid cuts. We get a sequence of a rotating camera shot pulling back or over the fan that's in the window. So it, it feels very much like James Wan making overt nods to different stages of his career. And those attic ones feel very, you know, saw. Agreed. You had the, there's a Goonies joke in the movie, Jake. You I love you the, Goonies the Goonies joke. joke. Fine, I even have a, I have a note. I do love the sloth from Goonies joke. Like, that shit made me laugh. That made me yeah. very and happy. Putting out a bolo on sloth from the Goonies. <laughs> That's one of only two times I've ever laughed sincerely at a Conjuring-related or James Wan film that I can remember. The other one would be Annabelle, the third one which had some good jokes in it. But uh, yeah. I did like the Goonies joke. Dr. Weaver, you've been bad. <laughs> I only operated on you once. <laughs> Maybe twice. Real quick, Dr. Weaver, the first Dr. Kill of the movie. 
played by uh, Jacqueline McKenzie from Deep Blue Sea, Romper Stomper, and Angel Baby. That's a good couple of movies right there. And real quick, the last Doctor uh, we discussed, there were three Doctors involved in the uh, submission of uh, Gabriel. It was Dr. Victor Fields, played by Christian Clemenson, who was in The Fisher King, Armageddon, and Bad Influence. Did we do Annabelle Wallace and the two cops? Might as well hit them, too. I got them right here. I did Annabelle Wallace. The two cops, we got uh, Kakao Shao, who was played by George Young from Containment and Grace. He was the uh, the brother on uh, Scrubs, right? Was he? No. He oh, just looks you. like that guy. <laughs> <laughs> made that joke in our chat channel before. <laughs> you laughed then. <laughs> I haven't seen explicit- Scrubs. So. I, I didn't know which brother you were talking about. I got confused. All right. Uh, Regina Moss is the other cop, played by Nicole Brianna White from Volcano, Faster, and Encino Man. And the sister, Sydney Lake, was played by Maddie Hassan from We Summon the Darkness, God Bless America, and Twisted. D- Detective Regina Moss is so wonderful and gets all the, the great zingers. He has at least one, what the fuck is this shit reaction? <laughs> has as the, the aforementioned Goonies reference. <laughs> is on the receiving end of of my favorite random touch which is so you see the police station in this film again this is one of those things if you're a horror fan you get struck by certain things and when you see the police station for the first time you see this overhead shot and you're like what the fuck is tile floor this cavernous roof and all this stuff is like what a is it a church set it is and it's like that is so striking it reminded me of the, the cop precinct in gotham <laughs> it, it is, yeah. It, it's again. It's like some Batman Forever shit. Well, we're watching on, the man. origin of a Batman villain here, so yeah, it makes sense. And it's also we can have this bananas fight sequence, but it ends with you know as the two cops are fleeing, and Gabriel is also fleeing after having just been shot at, and Gabriel grabs a chair, and you expect the next bit is Gabriel using that chair to yes. break the window because the oh. entire wall. Of this place is just window. So it's like, all right, he's going to break the window and he's going to jump. And instead, Gabriel grabs the chair and goes, Olympic shot put time. (laughs) And lobs this thing all the way across this massive fucking room and beans the cops. And again, it is the funniest shit. And then he walks out of the room backwards for reasons I don't understand. (laughs) And I very specifically mean backwards for him because he walks out, Maddie face forward. So why why are you strutting out of here backwards, fucking backwards, Bagul? You get confused. <laughs> he might just be he might be doing it on purpose, just trying to throw off anybody who might be outside. Maybe throwing, I, <laughs> throwing up backwards middle fingers like Rawls. These are for you, <laughs> And that, that some of my favorite lines in the film are immediately follow in that because the other daughter, the actor daughter, comes in there and she gets on the phone. Why am I calling the police? And the other guy goes, call the paramedics. And all I can think is the same fucking number, Hoss. <laughs> <laughs> Depends where you're at. You know, here it's the same number. There are some places it's different. Pretty sure it's 911 in Seattle. <laughs> that may be true. <laughs> I just, yeah. I love the crap out of this movie. <laughs> it made me so happy. I, I just didn't. I, <laughs> I, I think I have a note here. This My main problems with this movie are it's generally boring and pretty stupid. But I didn't hate it like I hated other things, and I liked the bones of it in terms of the the outlandishness, the the over the topness of the end, the over the topness of the beginning. Uh, I thought the performances were generally not in any way offensive whatsoever. Well, that's not true. The stereotype holding ten was pretty offensive. 
but uh yeah i i just i wanted to to like it more than i actually did but in the end it's just too ridiculous and it's asking just a bit too much of me to suspend my disbelief on but i'll still watch the sequel see so. for me it had great practical effects fun combat sequences it had a truly evil and terrifying villain in my opinion it had a great reveal and all in all it hit a lot of my buttons and it's hard to you know any movie that can trick me for over the first hour already has my respect uh, there's so many movies out there you're like 10 minutes in and go i know where this is going <laughs> and this one i had a fair amount but it didn't really hit me until i was it was almost over and i was just like i love you movie thank you <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say there there is a lot of stuff in here i liked i liked the chase scene between the cop and backwards bagul that goes into underground seattle mm-hmm. like i like the way he goes down the uh the fire escape. Yes. And then the fact that the cop just dives off it at the end. <laughs> and thumps on top of the dumpster. Yeah. And then they, they somehow go down and fight in a dry ice covered <laughs> graveyard for old coaches. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, it's like this takes not even a lick of sense. But boy, it's fun looking. You it's know, he's striking. Jack yeah. the Ripper. It's yeah, and then he, the visually way he, stunning. Backwards Bagul goes out of that room upwards and he's just like, what the fuck? And it's, it, I, yeah. I like that. It's just, again, and it's a problem I keep having. Like, I don't even think like the Conjuring movies are that terrible in their own, in a certain way. Like, they're not horrible movies. They're just they're boring clearly hitting and the right poorly edited for some people. And they could be so much better again if you move about half, you know, half an hour. And I think the same thing with this. There's about half an hour in here that could completely just go. You don't need cop romantic triangle nonsense that comes up for no reason whatsoever like four times in the film you, you just don't need it and you know I, th- I think this could have used a heavy edit and it could have been a really truly tremendous horror movie instead of divisive it could have been a new i, I don't want to say a new nightmare in elm street that's that's over the top but it could have had that kind of impact in creating a new horror icon i think and i i think There'll still be Funko Pops of Gabriel in here before too long. Although I guarantee they're going to get into the the supernatural side of him in, in the sequel because they keep calling him the devil in this. You're going to find out he was, you know, it was it was basically the plot of Born is going to be the plot of Number Two oh. here. And, yeah, I didn't hate it. I just didn't like it. It's just it's it wasn't my thing, but I liked a lot about it, and I liked what it tried to do and what I, I again i like the beginning and the end even though it's so over the top ridiculous that this fucking backwards ninja super strength phantom monster with electrical powers and telepathy and can somehow his sister can see out of his eyes but he can't see out of hers and which i have to assume because otherwise there's no point to the backwards stuff but anyway yeah the movie is not a, a total home run for me like i mentioned the the middle stretch I think could be stronger again. I, I understand the overall pace for it and I think it pays off in the, in the ending, but I have quibbles. I think the score is good for the most part. I, I wish the score went more bonkers at the end. Cause again, the score is very much treating a lot of the stuff in the last chunk very seriously, which again, you know, give me that blood, but go all the way nuts. But I think the score in this was everything that the, uh, the score in the, what was the name of the Kane movie we watched? See no evil. That what see no evil was trying to be. 
So I, I appreciated that it worked in this one. Anyway, all right, move on. <laughs> like I mentioned at the onset, I have such fondness for when someone gets an at bat and for some reason the owner of the team isn't looking and they swing <laughs> for the fucking fences. Like they were told, you got to go up there and bunt. And I'm saying, no one's looking. Bam! And it's like, because this is the trappings of this are like we meant are straight studio horror and, and stuff we've come to expect. And like, I haven't seen the trailer before. Like Nick mentioned, you could cut a very serious conjuring esque trailer. The heart of this movie is pure schlock. Yep. And it is mm-hmm. schlock to a degree that I don't think I have ever seen on this scale. And that someone said, I'm going to do it. And that someone got away with it is, <laughs> I, I just, I have such admiration for that. If it comes out that James Wan was like, I was trying to make the scariest movie ever made. I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I don't think he was, because I think even through all his films, despite generally me not loving all of them, he's absolutely an ardent fan of horror. And this is very much him putting that love on display and using his position in Hollywood to make something that otherwise that no one other than him in the horror genre would have had probably a chance in hell of getting made. Mm -hmm. In the couple interviews I saw, and I, I didn't read many, he didn't talk about trying to make a scary film. He tro- well, you know, the terrifying film. He talked about trying to make his spin on Giallo. Yeah, and I can see because it had again I'm not overly well versed, but yet the kind of the heightened emotional peaks of Giallo, which have been parodied a bunch. You can absolutely see moments in this film as kind of an extrapolation of that, where it's just the the ways in that which those went over the top. We're going to update those and go over the top in you know, keep the same same extreme color scheme and whatnot, and just go way beyond <laughs> what any horror movie has ever done in the last ten to fifteen minutes. So it's a movie I really like, and I love the audacity of it, and that's why I thought it would be really fun for us to talk about, and I thought it would make a really fun. You know, I think we all agreed this would be a great movie to talk about as kind of a. Welcome back episode. Absolutely. Hey, you know how you mentioned that it reminded you most of Blade Runner? It reminded me most yeah. 2049. It reminded me most of Darkman. Yo, oh, yeah. I can see that it's kind of the Raimi elements and yep. Yeah. yeah. Just throwing that out there. Yeah. Like I mentioned, not not at all to do with the tone of Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> but Blade Runner 2049 is is the biggest example I can think of seeing a movie in theaters and thinking I can't remember the last time on this scale where I felt the creator's voice coming through so strongly. I, and I, I don't think I've ever been as glad to see a movie in theaters as I was Blade Runner 2049. I, yeah, I saw it three times. Um, Actually, that's not true. I was glad to see Hereditary in theaters, but anyway, <laughs> for very different reasons, <laughs> very different reasons. But I actually made a point of going to see it in a fancy surround and, and supersized screen because the movie warranted it so but i don't this think one doesn't. i, I <laughs> don't think yeah i wouldn't say that malignant warrants any sort of special sound special setup whatever what malignant warrants like i said is getting out get some booze <laughs> get to your local theater at midnight on a friday 
and go in there with hopefully a lot of other horror fans and enjoy the ride. It does have, and I mentioned Hereditary, it has one of those horror moments that we're going to be talking about and referencing for a long time. And hopefully some of the ripoffs will be okay too. But yeah, I, I think that that alone makes it worth watching. It, it will be part of the lexicon for a long time, I think. So we all agree, absolutely worth watching. And we hope you agree this episode was worth listening to because we had a ball talking about it and we're very glad to be back. Yay! Yay! So our comic episode is mostly recorded. We've got one last bit to record, so this will be coming out before that. So keep an eye out for that. You can check out our website, scarystuffpodcast.com. Check us out on Instagram, Scary Stuff Podcast. On Twitter, we're Scary Stuff Pod. And check out rootlesscoffee.com and go to their partners page as this episode will be coming out right before the end of September. And at the end of September, our partner coffee is going away. So you, by the time this comes out, you'll have a few days. So head over there and grab a bag for it before it goes away entirely. It's Stock delicious. up while you can. It's good ass coffee. It really is. Would we lie? <laughs> Would <I> lie? <laughs> so we had a blast talking tonight. We honestly had a blast talking on the comics episode, which we're about to wrap up. We weren't kidding in the opening the sequence where we talked about having fabulous writers on. We have some fabulous writers who we had a wonderful time chatting with. So we can't wait for everyone to hear that episode. So we're also can have a live stream. Yeah. So by the time Friday. this comes out, it's currently scheduled for September the 24th at 7 p.m. Eastern time. We're going to be hopefully doing a live stream with our local comic shop, Captain Blue Hen. So since we've got an episode coming up about comic adaptations, we're going to talk about some horror comics with them. We did it once before back in February of, of this year. So going to do it again. So their site should be facebook.com slash Captain Blue Hen. And then you should be able to go to their events page and there should be an entry for it and you can RSVP. But you can just keep an eye on our Twitter feed. We're going to be posting yep. about it and we'll post a link to it when it goes up. So we'd love for you to join us live, but after it's ended, we'll link to it on our blog at scarystuffpodcast.com. Just so. Again, thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. We'll be back soon with a comic app. In the meantime, this is Eric signing off. This is Nick saying goodnight. This is Jake saying front-facing goodnight. <laughs> <laughs>